Good morning. The theologian B.B. Warfield, he said that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. So please give your attention as I read God's word in Proverbs chapter 28. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, through your holy word this morning, would you set before our eyes your goodness and glory, and would you implant within us godly desires and ambitions? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There on the screen, you see the, the text. And the author of Proverbs, he wants you to be as prosperous and as happy as possible. Verse 13, we see the word prosperity, prosper. Verse 14, we see the word blessedness, which can be translated as happiness. But it's not just any kind of happiness. It's the highest possible kind of happiness. Now, we're not talking about materialistic, worldly kind of prosperity. The author of Proverbs is wiser than that. The author of Proverbs knows that worldly materialistic prosperity is temporary and that we should not settle for that kind of happiness. If we were to ask a Christian, where will we experience the highest kind of happiness and prosperity? Likely they'll answer heaven and they would be right. What is it about heaven then that will experience the greatest prosperity possible? In Revelation chapter 21, there's a description of what heaven will be like. And on the screen here, as we look at Revelation 21, we'll see this. That in verse 3, the reason why heaven will be so prosperous and happy is the presence of God. And in verse 4, it's because of the absence of sin. And if we were to extrapolate a a very simple formula based on Revelation 21 as to what is supreme happiness, it would be the presence of God and the absence of sin. The author of Proverbs is actually using that same formula here in Proverbs 28. To increase your joy and happiness, and blessedness, the presence of God, and the absence of sin. So then what is the issue here? Why are you not as prosperous, or as happy as you could possibly be? Well, we know the issue is not the presence of God, because God is omnipresent. Therefore, we can conclude the issue is with sin. In heaven, there will be no sin. The problem here and now is that we still deal with the presence of sin. So does that mean we have to wait until we get to heaven to experience any of that prosperity, any of that blessedness? And the answer is actually no. The author of Proverbs is talking about the here and now that you can actually experience the kind of prosperity and blessedness God wants you to experience here and now. But it comes back to Well, the issue is not the presence of God because he is everywhere. It has to do with the sin that remains present in our lives. In verse 13, the author of Proverbs says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. 
that covering up your sin, hiding your sin, not dealing with your sin is actually a reason that you are not experiencing a kind of spiritual prosperity, joy, and blessedness that God wants you to experience. The first point this morning is this. Sin disrupts our spiritual vitality and communion with God. The author of Proverbs wants to remind us, and it's important that we as Christians are frequently reminded, our sin is doing something even still. Our sin is affecting us in ways that we may be unaware of. And the author of Proverbs is saying it's actually affecting your joy and blessedness and happiness. So again, if you are at all concerned about your personal joy and happiness, you would be very interested to hear what Proverbs has to say about that. And it begins by teaching us that sin disrupts our spiritual vitality and our communion with God. In the Bible, King David was arguably one of the closest people to God, and yet we see later in his life that closeness was compromised. And the reason for that was his sin. David committed adultery and Murder. He slept with the wife of one of his most loyal servants. Bathsheba got pregnant. David attempted but failed to cover up his sin. And then added sin upon sin by murdering Uriah. David thought he was in the clear. David thought that he had successfully concealed his sin. And that all was well. Proverbs would say, David was foolish. Proverbs 28 teaches us that successfully covering our sin never leads to spiritual success. Successfully covering up our sin never leads to blessedness or joy. In what ways do we conceal our sin? Maybe like David, we try to cover it up. Maybe we justify our sin. We make excuses for our sins. We defend our sins. We say things like, other people are doing it. Other people in this church are doing those things too. And we minimize that sin and conceal it. That is disrupting our spiritual vitality. And communion with God. In Psalm 32, David describes that season in his life when he was unrepentant, when he was concealing his sin and he thought he was fine. And as I read this, ask yourself, does this sound like spiritual prosperity and blessedness? Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Does that sound like happiness and blessedness? The answer is no. And so the author of Proverbs is right in verse 14. In saying, whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Meaning those who stubbornly live in sin, 
hardens their hearts, refuses to acknowledge their sin and repent, they will experience calamity. This word calamity, it can be translated as distress or misery or unhappiness, the exact opposite of blessedness. You might say, but didn't Jesus die on the cross for my sins? Didn't he already deal with that issue in my life? So I don't have to really think about it that much anymore. Yes, he did. Absolutely. But don't be deceived because although there is no longer any condemnation for our sin, there are still consequences for our sin. Let me say that again. In Christ, you're right. There is no longer any condemnation for our sin. But don't be fooled. There are still consequences for our sin. The author of Hebrew, um, the author of Proverbs here is talking about the life of the believer here and now. Yes, ultimately, anyone who does not repent and place their faith in Jesus, their sin is not dealt with and they still remain condemned in their sin and they will experience the greatest calamity, which is hell for eternity and the just wrath of God. But even for Christians now, although we no longer have that condemnation, we can still experience consequences for those sins, different kinds of distress, misery, and unhappiness. David was not condemned by God. He was a believer. Nothing can separate him from God's love, and yet David experienced the heavy hand of God on him. He felt like his bones were wasting away. He experienced not condemnation, but real-life consequences, distress, misery, and unhappiness for his sins. So if you're a believer here and you're thinking, now that I'm saved, I don't have to think about my sin. I don't have to take it seriously. I don't have to strive after holiness or sanctification or Christ-likeness. Proverbs would say that's foolish. You absolutely should care. And although your salvation is not on the line, there's still a lot on the line. Spiritual vitality and your communion and intimacy with God. What exactly is this calamity? What is on the line here? There are several things that it could be. The first Worldly consequences for sin. If calamity or the different kinds of consequences we experience, there are worldly consequences. And I think this one is a little more obvious. If you're falsifying information on your tax return in order to limit your tax liability, then you are subject to jail time and fines. That's obvious. There are worldly consequences for our sin. But there are also spiritual consequences. There's the fatherly discipline of God. David experienced the discipline of his father in heaven. In love, God disciplined him, but it did not feel good. In love, God disciplined him in order to awaken him towards the sin in his life so that he would turn away from it. 
There is also diminished usefulness and fruitfulness. As followers of Christ, do we not want to be as useful to God? For the short time that we have here on this earth. Do we not want to be as fruitful in the spirit? To bless those around us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But our sin that we conceal and that remain unconfessed and we're not taking seriously, it does diminish our usefulness and our fruitfulness. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, useful to the master of the house. Paul is telling Timothy, those who wash themselves and are repentant and pursue holiness and Christ-likeness, they will be useful to the master of the house. And so it's very possible that a reason why we are not as useful, as fruitful, or maybe as zealous and passionate you once were in the past for the things of God and for the glory of God to be spent by God could be because we're living in sin. It could be one reason why there is a a lack of zeal for evangelism that you once had to reach the lost. You lost that passion to serve. You lost that appetite for the word of God and prayer and church attendance that you used to love and you used to possess previously. Sin has that effect on us. John Owen, a Puritan pastor in the 1600s, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. And he writes about why it's so important that Christians take sin seriously and what they can do practically to deal with that sin. And he says that what sin does, it untunes the heart. If I were to mess with James Coe's guitar or Harry's guitar and just untune it, those are nice guitars, a Taylor and a Martin. It wouldn't be as useful as it's supposed to be if it were not tuned. We are God's precious children in Christ. Don't ever question or doubt that. Even in our sinfulness, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and God adores you and delights in you. But sin untunes our heart and we're not as useful in the way that God would want us to be. If we continue living in sin and we are unrepentant. Thirdly, there is a loss of spiritual sensitivity. Hebrews 3.13. Read with me here. But exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin hardens the heart. Again, this might be what John Owen has in mind. And maybe think about a time in your life when you were once so tender and receptive to the word of God. 
John Owen says that when we live in sin and we're unrepentant, those of us who used to melt under the preaching of the word, we used to melt when we would sing those praise songs. We would melt in our times of prayer. He says because of sin, that's one of the reasons why he says we become sermon-proof. We become sermon-proof. That just how some materials are waterproof and water cannot penetrate it, that because of our sins, our hearts can get so hard that the word is no longer penetrating our hearts and minds the way that it used to. And sin has this calcifying, hardening effect that you can go to church week after week after week, attend small group week after week after week, and yet nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. Maybe it's been months or years and there has been little stirring in your heart and minds for your affections for God. A real possibility might be, is there unconfessed sin in my life? Am I too content living alongside this sin? Fourth, There is a loss of communion with God, and this might be the most important and the most sad at the same time. Because of sin, a Christian can experience a loss of communion with God. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about your union with Christ or your union with God. I'm talking about your communion, the fellowship that you have with God, the intimacy that you experience with him. Your union with Christ is something that does not ebb and flow. Your experience with Christ, however, your communion with him, that can fluctuate. The author and pastor, Benjamin Skaug, he says this, and this will make it clear. While our union with Christ cannot be hindered or broken, the sweetness and intimacy of our fellowship with Christ can be hampered through sin. I don't know if that comes as a surprise to you at all. I don't know if this is new to you. But Proverbs isn't kidding when he says that our sin leads to calamity. Friends, there's much at stake here. It's not just your salvation. It's your usefulness and fruitfulness. Your intimacy and communion with God. I don't think Satan wants us to be aware of this calamity. I think Satan wants you to feel safe and secure. I think Satan is constantly preaching this message to you. You're fine. You're fine. Don't sweat the sin in your life. Don't take it seriously. Look, your life isn't completely falling apart. So just go on living the way that you're living. You don't need to really look like Jesus. Just enjoy the way that you're living right now. Why doesn't Satan want us to take this calamity seriously? Because he does not want you to be as useful to the master of the house. 
He does not want you to be as fruitful to bless other believers in the church. He does not want you to taste and see that the Lord is good so that you would sacrifice all of your other idols and pursue Jesus Christ and take up your cross and follow him. Satan wants us to remain spiritually lethargic. Proverbs is lovingly, sternly, and firmly warning us, brothers and sisters, your unchecked lust is doing something. It's doing something to your spiritual vitality. Your premarital sexual relations, it's doing something to your communion with your Father in heaven. Your extramarital relations, flirtations, thoughts, that's doing something, of course, to your marriage, but to your fruitfulness and usefulness. Your unrestrained gossip, unrighteous anger, slander, crude joking, crass language. Don't conceal it. Don't justify it. Don't defend it. Friends, those are doing something as well to your spiritual vitality. There is no sin. There is no sin that isn't doing something to your spiritual vitality and your relationship with God. As followers of Christ, I hope this morning we are just a little more awakened, a little more motivated to rise up to the calling to which we were called, a life of, a life of usefulness to Christ, fruitfulness for the sake of others, joyful communion with God. Knowing this as people who want to live, and I believe that Deep inside of every one of you here who is a follower of Christ, I honestly believe deep inside of you, you do, you really do want to glorify God in your life. You want to enjoy God in your life. So we need to ask a couple questions here. How can we avoid such spiritual loss? And secondly, what can we do to restore our communion with God when we do experience such loss? And the answer to both those questions is the fear of the Lord here in verse 28, in chapter 28. Second point this morning is the fear of the Lord drives us from sin and draws us back to him when we do sin. Verse 14, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. That's where true blessedness is in the fear of the Lord. This phrase, fear of the Lord, it occurs in the Bible 27 times and 16 of those 27 times occurs here in the book of Proverbs. What is the fear of the Lord? Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And if you look there on the screen, Proverbs 9.10, you'll see what's called parallelism. That the second statement is a reiteration of the first statement just in different words. So based on that, we learn this, that the fear of the Lord 
is knowledge of the Holy One. It's knowing God. And we're not just talking about facts. I'll try to illustrate it this way. I'm from the Northeast. And in the winter months, it's not uncommon to wake up to a world covered in snow. It's beautiful. I, I hope someday you'll, you'll experience that. You'll have to travel somewhere else. But it's breathtaking. Untouched, pristine snow blanketing everything as far as the eye can see. And now when you're driving to work or you're on your way to school, because of that snow, you drive differently. You feather the throttle. You're softer on the brakes. You can't drive the same way as if we're 80 degrees sunny and dry outside or else you'll get into an accident. That would be foolish because of what you know about snow and its properties. Based on what we know about God and his attributes and his qualities and his characteristics, he's beautiful. He's breathtaking. We're in awe of him based on what we know about him. But in the same way that snow is beautiful, yet in the way that we drive, we respect it at the same time. And we, rev- we revere God in the same way. God is beautiful, but we revere him and respect him. That's the fear of the Lord. Balancing both. Verse 14 says that we are to have this fear always. Not sometimes. Not just on Sundays, but always. That we are always to be captivated by the beauty of God. We are always to be aware of his purity and his righteousness and his holiness at the same time. How do we benefit from this? Verse 14 says, it's actually preventative. If we're aware of the fear of the Lord and we know him, it'll steer us away from calamity, unnecessary distress and misery and unhappiness because of our sin. So when I'm driving in the snow, that shortcut I used to take every day, because there's now snow on it, it's treacherous and I'm not going to go down that path. When we're so aware of God and his holiness and his love and his goodness, those paths that we would have normally taken, we do not take anymore. Those sinful routes we would have taken in our lives, we no longer take anymore because now God is so present in our life and we are so aware of him that we go a different way. The fear of the Lord serves us in that good way, deterring us from sin for the sake of our joy. Verse 14 says we're supposed to always have this fear. Proverbs 16.6 says this, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So what is our greatest weapon in our fight against sin? Is it accountability? Trusted, mature friends, we we surround ourselves with them. Is it software we install on our devices in order to block certain websites? And I'll say, yes, those are, are good things, important things. 
But that is not the ultimate weapon that we have against our fight against sin. In our fight against sin and our desire and pursuit of holiness. I think John Owen, the Puritan pastor I quoted earlier, I think he would agree. Yes, accountability, that's really good. Get that. Software, do it. But the problem with that is this, is that you can install software on your computer that'll block you from certain websites, but you could still have great desires for sin. That's not an ultimate solution. John Owen says this is the ultimate solution in his book, in The Mortification of Sin, to think greatly of the greatness of God. This is what he tells believers. Think greatly of the greatness of God. Knowledge of the Holy One. That when we know how great he is, how wonderful he is, how merciful and pure and and kind and patient, we think less of sin. Sin is no longer that attractive. Sin is no longer that enticing. Sin is no longer that great because God is great. Friends, I want to encourage you. Would you recommit your life to doing just that? Would you recommit your life to knowing the greatness of God, to think high and lofty thoughts of God? Psalm 104 104 says, O Lord my God, you are very great. And I encourage you, if you don't know where to start, read the Psalms. The Psalms are song after song declaring and proclaiming the greatness of God and many of his other attributes. His steadfast love, which is higher than the heavens. That he does not deal with us according to our iniquities. That he created all things and that he loves you and cares for you. Begin with the Psalms. Recommit yourself to knowing the greatness of God. But even then, we won't be sinless. I'll continue to sin. You will as well. So what do we do when we do sin? Again, we go back to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord draws us, drives us from sin, but the fear of the Lord also draws us back to him when we do sin. It serves two good purposes. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God the way that we have phobias. When we have phobias, those want to, they, they cause us to keep our distance from things like spiders and clowns. That is, that's not the kind of fear God wants us to have, to keep our distance from him. A proper fear of the Lord is based on the true knowledge of God. And that doesn't make us wanna, want to run further away when we sin. It actually wants, makes us want to run faster back when we sin. An example of the wrong kind of fear in the Bible is in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son. The son, he grows up in his father's home for many, many, many years, and yet he never really knew his father. And that's evidenced in his premature demand for his inheritance. 
that he didn't really know his father and didn't care to know his father and wanted nothing to do with his father. And you think, how could the son grow up in his father's house and not know his character? It fills me with sorrow, and I also fear that many churchgoers are in the same page. They're in the same boat as the prodigal son. They grow up going to church. They grow up in Christian families. They go week after week, and yet they don't really know their father. Now, if I ask you, do you know God? I think most of us would say yes. But if I ask you to describe your personal relationship with your father in heaven, I think that's when some of us here wouldn't know what to say anymore. We would be at a loss for words. We wouldn't know where to begin. Maybe it would make you feel kind of uncomfortable. I, I, I don't know how to answer that. The son grew up with his father, and yet he had no real relationship with his father. He didn't have the good kind of, of fear that the author of Proverbs wants us to have. And because of that, he demands his inheritance. He leaves his home, runs away from his father to a foreign land, squanders all of his money in reckless living, runs out of money, hits rock bottom. Calamity. And here's the tragedy. Had he known his father, he would have returned home much sooner. But he delayed. Had he known his father, that calamity he was experiencing would have been minimized. But he waited. Day after day, he delayed and he compounded that calamity. He wouldn't have waited if he had known his father because he would have known that his father was waiting. His false fear kept him further away. His ignorance made him keep his distance. I think Satan wants to do his best to manufacture in us a false fear of our father in heaven. I think Satan wants to do his best to make us keep our distance, delay our repentance, disrupt our spiritual vitality and communion with God. I think one way he does this is this. Satan wants you to replay your sins rather than repent of your sins. He wants you to just wallow and your guilt and shame, and think about that over and over and over again. Repeat, 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 rather than repent. He wants to convince you, you waited too long. You've sinned too much. You've lost your chance. Don't even bother. Maybe your father was waiting the first month, up to six months. Yeah, that window has closed. Listen carefully to the promise in verse 13. He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 
doesn't say might, doesn't say possibly, doesn't say probably, doesn't say may. It says will obtain mercy. This is a promise, friends. You will. The Father is waiting. There is no one who truly repents who is not fully forgiven. That person does not exist. What makes this possible? What makes this promise possible that you can go to God and obtain mercy? It's a gospel promise. It's a gospel that makes this possible. True fear don't get me wrong, does know that God is holy and righteous. True fear does understand that we are undeserving of God's love because we are sinful. True fear knows that we are justly deserving of God's wrath and eternal punishment in hell. But true fear does not stop there because that's where Satan wants you to stop. True fear goes on and knows the good news of Jesus Christ. True fear knows that Jesus was cursed and condemned on the cross. True fear knows that it's not by my works that God loves me more, and it's not by my sin that God loves me less. But true fear knows that it's the grace of God that I was saved and will be saved, and God will make sure my salvation is sealed. True fear knows that although I still sin and stumble and stray, it's never too late. But the Father is patiently waiting. I think Satan loves using history against us. I think he's a studious historian of our lives. I think he loves using this line, remember when. To disrupt and disquiet our souls and trust in the gospel. Remember when? Remember when you were in high school and you were with your friends at that party? Remember when... You turned 21. Remember when you were in college and you were in your second relationship and you promised and you swore that would never happen? Remember in your marriage? Remember the way that you treated your kids? Do you remember last week? Do you remember last night? Satan is a studious historian. He loves using history against us. But someone who has a true fear of God uses Satan's same tactic against him and uses history and says, remember when Jesus died on the cross? Friends, use history. Remember when Jesus rose from the grave? Remember when sin was defeated and death lost its sting? True fear knows and trusts the gospel. It's the fear of the Lord, friends, that draws you back to God when we do sin. How do we do that? This passage teaches us that we confess our sin and we forsake our sin. Those are two things. Friends, I don't know where you are in your life. God knows. I want you to experience the greatest joy and communion and intimacy with God. I want you to be useful and fruitful, and I believe you do as well. Proverbs 20 says, would you confess your sin and forsake your sin? Throw it away, cast it away, abandon those sins. 
and see what is in store for you. Repentance, it's not easy, nor is it instant. We're going to spend the rest of our lives as Christians repenting daily, and we need help. Where do we find this help? Practically in two ways. The first is the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit's help. We cannot see our sin with our own eyes. Would you pray this prayer sometime soon and ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart? Not just a cursory look over your heart, but would you pray and say, Holy Spirit, would you take a long, hard look at my life? Take a long, hard look at my thoughts, my speech, my marriage, my parenting. See if there's any grievous way in me. Second, we need friends, fellow believers. David needed Nathan to confront him about his sin, to expose his sin, to move him towards repentance. We need those kinds of friends as well. Proverbs 27 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That a true friend in the Lord will lovingly and maturely, graciously, but firmly confront you about the sin in your life. They will not ignore it. Any friend that approves of of your sin is no friend at all. Any friend that will participate with you in your sin is no friend at all. Any friend that will turn a blind eye to your sin is no friend at all. Those are not good friends in the Lord. Maybe church-going friends. Maybe long-term friends. doesn't matter how long you go back. They are not concerned about your greatest joy and happiness and blessedness because they are not concerned about your relationship and intimacy with God. A true friend will care more about your relationship, God, than their relationship with you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes this in his book, Life Together. Let's read along here. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Would you help a fellow believer Friends of yours restore their spiritual vitality and communion with God to increase their blessedness and joy that they may be missing out on. Is there someone in your life you need to lovingly and courageously confront in the Lord? Repentance. It is a strenuous spiritual activity, but I hope you see it's worth it. It's worth it. Friends, we have a short life here before Christ comes back. I long to see you and Christ central as useful and fruitful to the Lord as possible. I long to see your marriages and families thriving and flourishing in the Lord. Would we take our sin seriously? Would we take repentance seriously? Repentance is often where revival begins. Let me close with this. In 1907, there was a massive revival in Korea known as the Pyongyang Revival. 
This revival led to many new converts, considerable growth in Korean Christianity. What fueled this spiritual revival? It wasn't the awesome music. It was repentance. One missionary who was present describes the scene. He says, man after man would rise, confess his sin, throw himself on the ground and weep and grieve over his sin. He said that the prayers sounded to him like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against the throne of God. And there they were met with mercy. That pattern of revival on the heels of repentance is also seen throughout Scripture. And it may be the pattern in your life to experience that personal revival. I don't know if there will be a revival in Christ Central. We can't promise that, but there can be a revival in your personal life. Let's start there. Start with my life as well. So I long to see us all rediscover what it means to fear the Lord, to delight in him, to fervently seek first the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that the wayward would make their way back home this morning. And when they do, would you wash them with your mercy? And would you cover them with your love? We pray that the Spirit would revive our affections for Christ and renew our passion for His glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.